Yo, what's up guys? It's Christian with Christian's Corner. Today we're going to talk about the NFC-AFC Championship games, and then we're going to look forward to the Super Bowl matchup in two weeks. We're also going to talk about Conor McGregor's return to the Octagon, as well as the Houston Astros situation and how the MLB is handling it. And we're going to take a look at the new upcoming Galaxy S20. It's going to be a great episode. Let's get into it, guys. The first game played Sunday was between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tennessee Titans, who were not a team people expected to be in the position that they were. They beat the Patriots, even though they weren't the Patriots of old. It was still Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, and they did a very good job of handling them, led by Derrick Henry. Then they go into Baltimore and go up against what will probably be the MVP of the NFL, Lamar Jackson, who had a record-breaking season. They absolutely crushed Baltimore, played a fantastic game defensively, punching their ticket in to the AFC Championship game. The Baltimore Ravens might have had a phenomenal offense, and the Titans may have played one of the best defensive games of the season, but until you go up against a guy like Patrick Mahomes, you do not know what a good offense looks like and what an unstoppable quarterback looks like. Tennessee came out, played very well. Derrick Henry opened up the game with a nice wild card touchdown, but didn't quite finish the game as strong as he had in the past two games. Now, he didn't necessarily need to go out there and get 180-plus yards, but you would have liked to see him reach at least 100. In the first half, the Titans' defense did a good job of keeping the Chiefs in check. They were limiting Patrick Mahomes and what he was able to do. They weren't giving him easy throws, and they were doing a fairly good job of picking their poison with Travis Kelsey or Tyreek Hill. Now, the Titans probably weren't going to be able to sustain that kind of defense for four quarters, so the Tennessee offense was really going to have to step it up. And through the first two quarters, they played fairly well, put up 17 points. But once they got to 17, it was pretty much all Chiefs there. Patrick Mahomes was able to find Tyreek Hill in back-to-back -back touchdowns, an 8-yard pass, and then a nice 20-yard pass. They had Tyreek in man coverage. He did one little move, and the defender was never going to be able to keep up with him in terms of raw speed. And Mahomes made what is a very easy throw for most quarterbacks, let alone Patrick. But, again, in the first half, Tennessee played well. They did their job defensively. It's just the offense was not able to generate enough points to be able to compete. Derrick Henry, even though he scored the opening touchdown, didn't have the game people would have expected. Only 69 yards. Didn't even break 70. Yes, by one yard, but still. But the star for Tennessee on offense was Ryan Tannehill, who he proved people wrong by showing not only can he make it to an AFC championship game, which I never would have thought he would be playing in one, let alone the playoffs. He's had not the best career, but he played well. 21-31, threw for over 200 yards and two touchdowns, didn't turn the ball over, played well. He was able to get his team into striking distance there in that fourth quarter, putting up two touchdowns after a scoreless third for both teams, but he looked good. He he played against a good Kansas City team and was able to pretty much carry that offense in the absence of Derrick Henry's big game. It was a 
nice performance from the underdog Tennessee, but ultimately it was too much to handle. Patrick Mahomes had his way with them there in the second half. He played very, very good football. He also picked it up running the ball, leading the Kansas City Chiefs in yards and touchdowns with 53. He played well. I mean, it's hard to shut a guy like that down. Houston did it, and then that quickly changed. Tennessee did it, and that quickly changed. It's pick your poison with that offense. If no one's open, Patrick is going to make a play with his legs. If Kelsey's covered, he'll find Tyreek. If Tyreek's covered, he'll find Kelsey. If they're both covered, he has Sammy Watkins, probably one of the best, if not the best third option in the NFL. He didn't have quite the start to his career that people would have expected. Injuries here and there. And just not putting up the numbers people would have expected for the Clemson graduate. But he has found a home here in Kansas City with a phenomenal quarterback. He could be a second and probably a first option at in some teams. But here he is a third, which goes to prove how deadly this team is. When Sammy Watkins is your third guy. And Sammy Watkins had probably the touchdown of the night for me. That 60-yard bomb from Patrick Mahomes didn't look like he was going to be able to do anything with the play. He escapes the pressure, heaves it down the field like no one else can, and finds Sammy Watkins, who was all alone with one man who didn't even know where the ball was. It was a beautiful play, and that really capped off the game, making it 35-17, and Kansas City never looked back. Ryan Tannehill did a good job of trying to bring it back, with his 22-yard touchdown to Anthony Ferkser. He made an 11-point game, but it was too late for them to mount the comeback. It was a phenomenal performance, though, and you can't deny the future that this Tennessee team has. Mike Rabel has turned this organization around, proved that he has a high ceiling, and can take this team very far. If the Titans could just land a quarterback, no offense to Ryan Tannehill, but a good quarterback, it doesn't have to be the best, but a good quarterback to go along with a good offensive line, a phenomenal running back, a good young receiving core, and a great defense, and a coach who makes sure his players fight every second of the game. They definitely can be a titan in this league, haha, <laughs> if they can land a quarterback. They have all the makings to be a deadly team. They just need a decent quarterback to be able to do a little more than Ryan Tannehill can control the game a little more than he can so that they can give a little bit of a break to Derrick Henry at times and not rely on him to literally run them into the next game. But you can't deny that the Kansas City Chiefs deserve it. They're a phenomenal team. Patrick Mahomes is one of the most talented NFL quarterbacks you've ever seen in your life. He's got all the skills you need to win a Super Bowl and Andy Reid is a plenty good enough coach to win this game. It'll be an interesting game. And even though I'm a Packers fan and I would have liked to see the Packers in the Super Bowl, uh, I have to be honest, the 49ers against the Chiefs would make a much better game because I don't think that Packers defense would have a chance against Mahomes. Because eh, neither did we against the 49ers. But hey, it'll be a fantastic match and I definitely cannot wait to watch the Super Bowl. The NFC Championship game between the 49ers and the Packers was a much different story. 
the 49ers were expected to win the game, but I don't think anybody expected them to beat the Packers in the way that they did. The defense had Green Bay's number. The running game, which isn't Green Bay's strong suit, was terrible. Aaron Jones couldn't get anywhere. He did score a touchdown eventually and rushed for 56 yards, which isn't bad typically in this league. A game like that on the ground is typically enough as long as your quarterback plays well and your defense manages the other team. But that didn't happen. Aaron Rodgers wasn't able to get anything going. He was sacked three times, which is surprising because if you watch the game, it's a shock that he wasn't sacked more. Every time he dropped back, someone was coming for him. And even if he had the time to throw the ball, the coverage downfield was phenomenal. And a lot of the times he didn't even have an open receiver. And it doesn't help your passing game. When Devontae Adams has nine, and the second highest was Jimmy Graham with four catches. Sorry, Aaron Jones had five. But it didn't really matter because Aaron Jones had five catches but only 27 yards. Jimmy Graham, four catches, 59 yards. Not a bad game for him, but you can't rely on one guy. And the Packers only have one guy. They have other weapons, but whether it be Rodgers, the play calling, whatever it is, they just don't seem to be able to get it to those other guys, to not trust those other guys. And it shows when they play because as long as you shut down Devontae Adams and make sure he doesn't have a crazy game, which he put up good numbers, but, you know, that's not going to win a game. Especially when San Francisco's defense played the way that they did. Two interceptions. One was a pretty bad pass. Well, actually, both of them were pretty bad passes, but the coverage was great. And Rodgers played fairly well. I mean, he, got, he threw for two touchdowns, 31 of 39, threw for over 300 yards, which is a good game. But when you turn the ball over as much as they did, they had the center, under center exchange. Rodgers, I don't even think, touched the ball. A blitz. Rodgers didn't even see the guy coming. Strip sack. And they lost that. It was turnover after turnover after pressure after pressure after bad play after bad play. And Green Bay just couldn't do it there in the first half, and that ruined it there in the second. They outscored San Francisco in the second half, but when you put up zero points in the first 30 minutes of the game, putting 20 up in the second is probably not going to be enough, especially when Raheem Mostert had the game that he had. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo only threw eight passes. It is very hard in the NFL at least the way that it's played now, to win a game where your quarterback only throws eight passes. But when Raheem Mostert rushes for 220 yards and four touchdowns, that can definitely change it. He had a phenomenal game and literally carried that team. Garoppolo didn't have to do a thing. George Kittle didn't have to do a thing. It was all their run game and all their defense, and that's all that they needed. Typically in this league, you need your passing game. 
But when you shut down a team so well, and the other team's defense can't make a tackle to save their lives, who needs a quarterback? San Francisco put on a clinic and showed the NFL that you can still win games by quite a big margin without just chucking the ball 30, 40 times a game. The defense led by Nick Bosa and Richard Sherman is the best defense in the league, period. The Titans have surprised everybody with their defensive play, but San Francisco, hands down, makes what Tennessee has done this playoffs look like nothing. If any team was going to be able to beat Kansas City, it is the San Francisco 49ers. Their defense, the way they control a game, the way they manipulate it, shut down a quarterback, and a very talented one at that. They cause pressure. They get in your backfield to make sure your running back doesn't have a big game, which they won't need to do against Kansas City because they don't really run the ball. But they will have to make sure that they keep up with Patrick Mahomes, who is very deadly when he gets out of the pocket. And when you have guys like D. Ford and Nick Bosa, they're plenty athletic to chase him down. Now, are they going to be able to shut him down? No. I don't think any team can shut Patrick Mahomes down. But if any team was going to be able to manage him and slow him down enough to let their offense get a nice head start and build a lead, it's the 49ers. I still think the Chiefs have what it takes to win the game, but I think the 49ers could really surprise everybody and make it this make this year their year. They have the defense. They have the quarterback who <laughs> didn't need to do anything in the NFC Championship game, more like a spectator. And they have a great running back in Mostert. He's not a big-name guy, not someone who's made a lot of noise in this league. He's mostly been a special teams guy. But he has found a fantastic place here in San Francisco. And he flourishes in this offense. If they can do what they did against the Packers, make sure the Chiefs maybe turn the ball over once or twice. Get to Patrick Mahomes. Get a couple sacks. This could be a very interesting game. Because if you want to beat the Chiefs, you're not going to be able to shut that offense down. You're going to have to slow that offense down and give your own offense as much time to build a lead and make Kansas City catch up, which they have proved they can do, as they did against the Texans. But the 49ers are a much better team than the Texans are. And this could be one heck of a Super Bowl that I am so excited to watch, especially after last year's disappointment. Oh, that was a boring Super Bowl reminded me of the Panthers-Broncos game. This Super Bowl is not going to be anything like that. The 49ers and the Chiefs are by far the two best teams, obviously, in the NFL. And it's going to make a great matchup. It was disappointing to see such a boring game, especially in the first half, for an NFC Championship game, but you got to give it to San Francisco to be able to shut down Aaron Rodgers in the way that they did, stop that running game, and have their way with whatever they did offensively. To be able to only throw the ball eight times and put up the numbers that San Francisco did, you got to give it to him, and you got to give it to Shanahan and what he has done with this offense. It'll be interesting to see whether the 49ers' defense 
can prove once again that they can hang with anybody in the NFL, no matter who the quarterback is, or whether Patrick Mahomes will really show how talented he is and how talented this Kansas City team is. I think it'll be a very interesting game. I think it'll be a game where San Francisco might even build a little bit of a lead. But a 27-point lead, not that I think they'll get that far, is a lot less dangerous when you've got Patrick Mahomes on the other side. So I think it'll definitely turn into a shootout, and maybe even see Patrick Mahomes lead his team in a late comeback. I look forward to it, and I feel real bad for my Packers because, oh, we got absolutely crushed. But hats off to San Francisco. When you play that poorly, you don't deserve to win. And it might be Aaron Rodgers' last chance to get this close to the Super Bowl. I don't know how much longer he's going to be able to play at a high level, and I don't know if the Packers are going to be able to nail anybody besides Devontae Adams to help him especially in the offensive line. You look at some of the guys in the offensive line, though, and you go, oh, Brian Balaga, Bakhtiari. Those are big names, right? Yeah. But I don't think Green Bay's offensive line is that great. One, even if Rodgers had the best offensive line, nobody gets open besides Devontae Adams, and you can't throw to one guy the entire game. I mean, it works sometimes, but not against a team like San Francisco. Not if you want to win a Super Bowl. The Packers have a lot of work to do during this offseason if they want to even get close to the NFC Championship next season. They need to improve that line and they need to have more weapons for Rodgers. Especially because I don't think Rodgers has probably that many years left in him. But it'll be an interesting game in the Super Bowl. I look forward to it. It'll be interesting to see what Richard Sherman and that secondary can do to stop Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins, and Travis Kelsey. They haven't played an offense like that, but Patrick Mahomes hasn't played a defense like San Francisco. It'll be a great game, and I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it in two weeks. Now, I may not be the biggest baseball fan, and by that I mean I don't watch baseball at all, but when the Astros make the news in the way that they have, it's something you can't miss out on talking about. After winning the World Series in 2017, allegations came out that they may or may not be stealing signs. And they did this on into the 2018 season. After an investigation by the MLB, it was found out that they were in fact stealing signs. The MLB, as an organization, is an organization that has had to deal with a lot of cheating scandals like this steroids and PEDs to pine tar which is just an ongoing thing corked bats all of that the MLB has had their share of ways that people cheat this is another level of cheating in my opinion where an entire organization is stealing key signs to assist them as a whole in winning a game. One player using steroids or corking his bat or a pitcher using pine tar, that's one thing. That makes one player excel. But when it, an entire team or an organization cheats at the level that they did, 
that raises a lot more questions. And the MLB decided to hand down some big, big suspensions and fines. Manager A.J. Hinch was suspended for the entire 2020 season. He was then later fired, as well as GM Jeff Lanau. Don't know how to pronounce that name, sorry. Who was also fired. Former assistant general manager Brandon Taubman was suspended a year. He was not fired. The Astros have to forfeit their first and second round draft picks for the next two years. And the Astros organization was fined $5 million, the maximum allowed under the MLB's constitution. But a lot of fans are taking the discussion further and wondering, well, should the Astros, for what they did, be stripped of their title entirely? In a poll conducted by ESPN, 56% of people say that the Astros should lose their World Series entirely. That's over half of fans who consider themselves to be not die-hard, but pretty regular fans think that they shouldn't even be recognized as champions anymore. And the Red Sox have undergone some similar allegations, but I'm not going to discuss that because, again, I'm not a baseball fan, so I don't know as much as I should, but I will discuss the Astros. The MLB, I think, for the most part, does a very good job of handling things like this. I think they handle the right amount of fines and suspensions and handle their organization, their business, very well. Which begs the question, how do you compare an MLB organization to the NFL as an organization? They've had their fair share of scandals as well. I wouldn't say they're as known for individual cheating like steroids and stuff like that. But, specifically the New England Patriots, who have been the most dominant team in the past two decades, have had their fair share of cheating scandals. Deflategate, which Tom Brady was eventually suspended for that. Some people agreed with it. Others thought it was ridiculous and unneeded. But the Patriots have also been found to still not signs, but actual plays to even this season, recording for whatever reason a team that pretty much anybody could beat, the Cincinnati Bengals stealing their plays in an illegal way by recording them from the press box. Should the NFL do more? Should they try and style themselves after the MLB, handing out major suspensions to coaches and general managers? finding them quite a substantial amount of money? Or do they handle things correctly? If you look at Spygate, all that happened to the Patriots is they lost the first round draft pick. They were fined only $250,000, which, I mean, that's a giant chunk of money, but compared to $5 million, doesn't look like anything. And Bill Belichick was fined 500000 And that was that. Deflategate, Tom Brady was suspended and fined. That was that. At what point does the NFL start to handle cheaters in more extreme manners? $5 million compared to 500000 to a coach is much, much different. The Patriots have 
routinely gotten slaps on the wrist. They haven't had an entire season suspension to a head coach or a GM. And it seems they, they continue to get away with things. And I'm not Patriot bashing. I'm just simply pointing out something that you could say is a little odd in the way the NFL handles things. I think, even though I'm not a baseball fan, I think the MLB is probably the best-run organization in American sports. They handle their league very well. Their rules are clear. Their fines, their suspensions, the way they handle people who do things illegally in their sport, I think is much better than any other professional sport. The NBA hasn't really had major scandals in recent years but the NFL has you can also look at Target Gate Sean Payton and the Saints I thought they handled that well but it still leaves you to think could the NFL do more can they try and follow what the MLB is doing especially if the Patriots continue to cheat minor or major infractions to the league's rules but I think the MLB overall has handled the situation well. Me personally, stripping a team of a title, I don't know whether I agree or disagree with that. That's a major, major, major penalty. And rightfully so. I mean, if you cheated to win, fair enough. But who's to say they wouldn't have won without cheating? It's hard to say, so I don't know whether I'm a part of that 56 who think that they should, or if I'm with the remaining 44. Did I do that math right? Let's hope so. But I doubt that will ever happen, because that is a big, big, big penalty to come down, and whether you're an Astros fan or not, it will enrage a lot of people. Neutral fans, people who even hate the Astros, might not think that that's a worthy penalty. But only time will tell. I doubt the MLB will do it. I think they've handled the situation well. And we'll see what happens with that. Moving across continents to Europe, specifically the United Kingdom, it was an exciting Premier League weekend. Chelsea played Newcastle and dominated the game. Possession, they were crushing them. Shots, they were crushing them, but... Ultimately, it was very poor and sloppy attacking from Chelsea. The chances that they were creating weren't chances that were really going to threaten Newcastle. The passing was poor. Trying to build up play was poor. They had possession. They were in the final third, but they weren't doing anything with it. you got to give it to Newcastle as well. They were defending very, very well. I mean, they put everybody back there, and they just didn't even attack. They just didn't care. They're like, defend, 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 kick the ball, defend. That's all. They didn't even look like they wanted to try and score a goal until the 95th minute. Chelsea give away one chance. Nobody's back. Maxim sends in a great cross, and Isaac Hayden finishes it off with a nice header. Could Kepa have done more? Probably. But ultimately... After dominating an entire match, Chelsea crumble late in, stoppage time, give up a late goal, one that shouldn't have happened, and lose a point. Well, three points. 
It didn't even get a draw, though, in a match that they should have won. Chelsea continuing shaky form here late in the season, which is disappointing, but great for teams like Tottenham, who are right on their heels trying to get into that top four. Manchester City as well, trying to catch up with Liverpool, drops two points to Crystal Palace. They're up 2-1 late into the match, and Fernandinho gives away, gives away an own goal to bring it 2-2, and they drop points. After an amazing and record-breaking season, City continue to struggle and get further and further away from that first-place spot that Liverpool is continuing to build on. Liverpool did that Sunday as well, beating a Manchester United team 2-0 and not really looking back after that. Virgil van Dijk was able to get on the score sheet and Liverpool once again showed what they're all about. They're continuing to dominate, still yet to lose. It could be an invincible season, who knows? And Liverpool fans are extremely excited about the way they're playing, and rightfully so. Virgil van Dijk has proved to be the best defender in the world. Robertson and Alexander-Arnold have proven to be probably the best, no, definitely the best, fullback duo in European football. And that's not even to take an account for Firmino, Sadio Mane, and Mo Salah. That Liverpool team is stacked, coming off of a Champions League win, looking to get a Premier League trophy, and maybe even repeat as Champions League winners. Tottenham also on the hills of Chelsea only got a draw from their match, which was disappointing, especially when Chelsea didn't get a single match, I mean a single point from their match. Tottenham is still very close on Chelsea, and if Chelsea continues this run of form, their places in the table could change very quickly, especially since Chelsea has quite the schedule coming up, playing against Arsenal and a match against Tottenham as well. And speaking of Arsenal, once again dropping points and failing to really show any class going forward and defending. They were up 1-0 and couldn't hold it out against Sheffield, allowing a very late goal to bring it 1-1, and they finished with only a point. Arsenal continues to not find their footing throughout this season, and they don't look like they really have a chance of finishing in the top four. Right now it's more of a battle of, well, more of a question, is Chelsea going to be able to wake up and continue the form that they had earlier on in the season? Or will Jose Mourinho be able to fix Tottenham and send them into the top four? Now to cap off this week's episode, we're going to talk about the upcoming Galaxy S20, which Samsung will forego the S11 and call it the S20, which is a cool name, I think. But regardless of what they're calling it, let's look at those specs, which is by far the most important piece of this phone. The S20 Ultra specifically is going to be stacked. 6.9 inch AMOLED display with 120 hertz refresh rate. But I watched a YouTube video that said that that 120 hertz will only be most likely only at 1080p. You will not be able to have that perfect 4K screen running at 120 hertz. That you will have to run at 60. 
software updates might change that, but what's rumored as of right now is that the 120Hz will only be available on Full HD, not 4K. Moving on to the cameras, they're going to go with five cameras. The Ultra will come with an 108 megapixel main camera, a 48 meg megapixel telephoto with a 10 times optical zoom, a 12 megapixel ultra ride, and a time of flight sensor. And that 10 times optical zoom, Samsung is rumored to also have a periscopic zoom, which I assume will be insane. They're going to have a 40 megapixel wide front facing camera so you'll be able to get those wide selfies if you're into selfies it'll come with 128 256 and 512 gigabytes of internal storage with micro sd support but the craziest thing here and i think it's a little bit overkill but why not is you can either get 12 gigabytes which we've seen with oneplus devices or if you really want to smack it full of ram why don't you throw 16 gigs in there why not have the RAM usage of a laptop? Well, sure, let's go for it. Seems overkill, but hey, if you can do it and it works, fine, whatever. And it's also going to come with a 5,000 milliamp battery with an optional 45 watt fast charger. This phone is going to be insane. Even if it's, I don't know, half as good as what these specs show, it's going to be a ridiculous phone. Now, we don't know the price yet, but I can assume it's going to cost quite a bit of money. So, that's why you look at the other options. The base S20, it's not going to be the S10 Lite or the S20e, sorry. It's just going to be the S20. It's going to come with a 6.2 to 6.4 inch AMOLED display with 120 hertz. So, each phone, even the cheapest model of the S20, is going to come with an 120 hertz display. The cameras, and it's going to be the same, no sorry, the cameras on the S20 is going to be a 12 megapixel main camera, a 64 megapixel telephoto with 3 times optical zoom, and a 12 megapixel ultra ride. So they'll go with a fairly normal now 3 camera lineup instead of the 5 that the S20 Ultra will have. It's also just going to be a 10 megapixel single punch hole front facing camera instead of the 40 megapixel wide lens for the S20 Ultra. And again, if you like selfies, that's what you get. It's not as good, but I don't take many selfies, so that doesn't bother me. It'll be 128 gigabytes of storage, and it'll come with most likely 8 to 12 gigabytes of RAM. And it's going to come with a 4,000 milliamp battery, which is a very nice battery, especially for their budget version of the S20. The S20 Pro or Plus, depending on what they call it, will come with a 6.7 inch AMOLED display with 120Hz, 12 megapixel main. The Ultra will be the only phone coming with the 108 megapixel camera. The S20 will also feature a 64 megapixel telephoto lens and 3 times optical zoom, 12 megapixel ultra wide, and a time of flight sensor. So it will have more cameras on the back than the S20 will, the base model, but it's still not going to be as decked out as the S20 Ultra. And it'll also get the same front-facing camera as the regular S20 will, and it'll come with 12 gigabytes of RAM and a 4500 milliamp hour battery with 25 watt fast charging. So, 
all of these phones look great, even the Galaxy S20 or their base model looks like a flagship phone. It's, I guess, in today's views of smartphone, kind of small at 6.2 to 6.4 inches, but it will get that 120 hertz display. I don't know whether it will have 4K, but it won't really matter because if you want to run it at 120 hertz, it will only be 1080p. The cameras will be the same as the S20 Pro or Plus, depending on what they call it. You just won't get that time of flight sensor as you do on the S20 Pro and the S20 Ultra. All phones will come with a great amount of RAM, and all of the batteries seem to be quite large batteries, which should be great, or at least will be able to handle that 120 hertz refresh rate. It looks like an amazing phone, and for someone who needs a new phone, I'm really glad that I skipped 2019 and I'm waiting till this year because if this is the first phone we're talking about, I look forward to seeing what OnePlus does and the new iPhone, even though I doubt I will even consider getting it, probably will be amazing. But as of right now, obviously it's very early in the year. We're not even out of January. So far, Samsung looks like the company and the S20 looks like the phone to beat here in 2020. It'll be interesting to see what OnePlus has. It'll be interesting to see what Google does with the Pixel 5 after their absolute fail this year with the Pixel 4. And now that Apple's actually listening to their customers, what are they going to bring to us here in 2020? But that concludes our episode for this week. Thank you guys for listening. I will see you guys next week. And I cannot wait to talk to you guys after the Super Bowl. Have a good night. Peace out.